welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the many sites and podcasts on the Now Playing Network. Here in each episode of Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director, their legendary classics, breakout films, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what themes and connections to other films may come up when you take a look at a filmmaker's body of work. Come join us on the film journey. Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And in this episode, we're taking a return journey into lands of darkness, abysses, (laughs) salt, infernos, caves, dreams... And more than a couple bears, (laughs) as we look at the later half of the career of German filmmaker Werner Herzog. But what we will not be able to add to that list is The Wrath of God, because (laughs) we talked about Aguirre in part one, as well as a number of Herzog's other most acclaimed films, Fitzcarraldo, Strozik, Nosferatu. If you uh, haven't heard our part one of Werner Herzog, go back to episode 133 and we will catch you up to where we will begin right now. As we approach the later parts of Herzog's career, there are a few differences to note. In the earlier films, you definitely had some documentaries, but the emphasis was on narrative films. Here, the center of gravity has shifted, and we're going to be dealing with mostly documentaries, what I I think are some magnificent ones, and with some narrative films sprinkled throughout. But... Herzog was so prolific during this period that we're discussing that we're also going to be missing a lot of these films. So there are many, many films we're just not going to have time to cover in this podcast. It seems that after Cobra Verde, Herzog turned a little bit of a corner. And I think there was some significant change, not just in his focus, like you said, Brad, we're just a lot more documentaries. But I think that there's a little bit of a change in attitude in Herzog since then. We, we talked about Akira Kurosawa on our podcasts about him. We sort of noted that as his career went on, he his subjects tended to get more and more bleaker and more depressing. And the exuberance at display from Seven Samurai was... Uh, was a totally different take on war than what Ron and Kagamusha is. And something when I, we were looking at these later periods of Herzog's films for me is that I see a, a guy who has gone in the opposite direction from these movies. Someone who had these outlooks were so bleak in films like Aguirre. Now by maybe by virtue of making these documentaries has such an exuberance to finding out some things that are interesting and weird about the worlds that he is examines. That even while he keeps his general attitude upon <laughs> how humans versus nature, who he expects to win out, <laughs> right? he still finds these things that are interesting and notable and worthwhile to focus about people along the way. For certain, I agree that, that there's a change in attitude, and I wonder if it partially has to do with that he's 
working in an entirely different language. At this point in his career, uh, most of his films are English language films, and he's working with independent studios from Hollywood. He's working with American movie stars. So there's a certain sense where there might be a little more polish going on here as he becomes more of a name in the movie industry. But I'm not sure he's completely lost that that bleak out, outlook. You know, uh, in the earlier films, one of the consistents seemed to be looking at, at madness. Yeah. Uh, he would be utilizing actors who were quite unusual. Uh, people like uh, Klaus Kinski and, and, and Bruno S. Yeah. And with these people, this idea of the insanity of the human condition really took hold that he hasn't completely lost that, but there is now much more of a focus on the natural world and the bigness of it. And I think in a number of these films, he draws a really distinct contrast between what is gigantic in nature to humanities being dwarfed by these things. If there's a consistent theme, it's that while we are fascinating creatures, we're probably a little too big for our britches in the universal sense. Mm. Yeah, that's really well put. And I see sort of, it's such an interesting statement on a difference of perspective that I feel that's, that's happening for it. And it's tied into that, now he's so much, it seems that he's so much more in terms of observing nature and then humanity in general as a place within it. Whereas before, maybe, maybe in because of his narrative films, he was more involved in putting in a surrogate. There would be mm-hmm. an Aguirre, there'd be a Fitzcarraldo, there'd be a Bruno S. Uh, or Casper Hauser or Strozhek who would rail against and there'd be a conflict of the internal madness or the internal way of disconnection versus the world. Whereas now it seems the world is in disconnection. The world is so wild that any human being can be can feel disconnected to it. And he still has this penchant for exploration. No matter how large the subject, he's constantly has the ability to find these interesting people to comment on them and since i think from his point of view perhaps the most interesting acting leads he worked with before are no longer available to him Mm. who could be stranger than real people (laughs) yeah good point he has explored unusual people in his early documentaries but it seems to shift partly because of the, the types of films he's making, but then also because he's found a lot of material in these very unique people. And part of the thing that we're going to be talking about is also that, like you said, the those feelings of darkness and, and maybe even bouts of nihilism that have shown up for in Herzog's attitude, they seem to come up and they are expressed through the people, the subjects of his documentaries 
in interesting and maybe not 100% appropriate ways. But we're, we'll go, <laughs> we're going to get into that as we go through these, these films. For sure. The first of which we're going to discuss perhaps epitomizes some of these problems, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. Two figures are approaching an oil well. One of them holds a lighted torch. What are they up to? Are they going to rekindle the blaze? Has life without fire become unbearable for them? Lessons of Darkness, released in 1992, uses footage of the burning oil fields of Kuwait in the aftermath of the Gulf War with Iraq. The narration introduces these images to us as if we are instead observing alien creatures from another planet and how their planet has been ravaged by war and oil fires. So this might be Into the Inferno, part 0.5. (laughs) But one way you can look at this movie is it's a sort of a spiritual successor towards Herzog's earlier film, Fata Morgana. Yes. It's Herzog at the greatest desire of trying to present a weird alternate world by just using the real landscapes of where he's filming and using the very natural elements of sand and water and oil and most importantly fire here he finds a very compelling elemental visual subjects of the burning oil fields of Iraq that's really astounding to be able to watch these towers of flame a visual representation of a biblical story of apocalyptic judgment. Uh, one that's not lost on Herzog as he breaks this film up into several chapters that each, I believe, have a quote from Revelation mm-hmm. uh, in it. And he does a trick akin to what Godard did in his film Alphaville in terms of by showing these areas, but showing them with just a little bit of an off-kilter perspective, maybe a little too close up, maybe a little too far away. Several scenes have him swooping over derelict oil drums and and burned over cranes and, and uh, shot over tanks, but then the camera twists upside down to give you a, an unconventional image. Right. He uses this way of showing things we may be familiar with if they were filmed conventionally into an alien landscape. What he's doing that's amazing in this film is a complete decontextualization. He's taking images that mean something to us. They are historic images from the aftermath of the Gulf War. These oil fires really occurred. Uh, Saddam Hussein in an act of war against Kuwait and U.S. forces one of his methods was to completely just destroy these oil wells. And that led to this gigantic natural disaster that we see documented in this movie as if it were a documentary. 
But then Herzog does something different. He asks us to look at these scenes as if we were looking at another planet. He talks about the people who are, we, we see, they're the workers who are trying to keep these fires under control. But he, he refers to them as, who are these strange creatures? And what kind of society do they live in where these fires burn on and on? I'm, those aren't direct quotes, but this is kind of the <laughs> attitude he's, he's taken. And so what we're forced to do is we have to look at familiar images from the time. And because he's taking us away from reality into a fictionalized place, we have to look at it with fresh eyes. Right. He does not elaborate in any detail of the societal, political, or historical causes which lead us to this fiery Mad Max type mm -hmm. location. He just shows us the images and gives an abstract description of the people, the disaster had loomed <laughs> <laughs> and the, the fires were raging and people were scurrying to go and deal with this issue and there were lakes of oil. Nothing would grow. It's taking these events and trying to sand off, ironically, the details to make it a mythic quality to these proceedings. Mm -hmm. Especially, I have to imagine, on, on a big screen, these oil fires and uh, throughout the desert and the waters and, and every image is is so potent and I, I and on a big screen even more so there, there's yeah. a scene where uh we see what looks like a lake and 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 they say well everything that looks like water is oil yeah you're familiar from reflections of water but it looks just different enough mm -hmm. for you to feel like something wrong is going on here while there no very little actual loss of life has happened during the destruction of, during these destructions of the oil wells themselves, Herzog, through continuous quotes with revelations and several interviews, or shall I say, quote unquote, interviews that he does with people, is giving us the impression that thousands of people have lost their lives in a horrific apocalyptic tragedy. Right, and he's talking about war. He's not, but what he's not talking about is the Gulf War of 1991. Right. He's right. talking about an abstracted war. So we have an interview with, with a, a woman, uh, I, I think, speaking in Arabic, and we're getting translations because this is, I believe, a fiction film. And it's, it's so interesting that I have yeah. to hesitate before I say that. In the, the case of this particular film, uh, she talks about how her child's uh, was, uh, tears were oil. Right. I, I don't think that's actually possible. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, that's yeah. well, that actually is a little more believable than the part where she describes how the child has had a guy put his army boot on his head and then use all his weight to stamp on the kid's head. And yet the kid's head is looks perfectly fine, mm -hmm. which is not be the result of something like that actually happening to, to say nothing of this particular touch, which unfortunately for me 
is giving me a little bit of the land of silence and darkness kind of eye roll where she says that this since that moment, the child has only said one thing. The child has said, Mother, I will never speak again. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a weird sort of way that Herzog is introducing us from a real tragedy of the Persian Gulf conflict to go and give us hints and inclinations of a totally different kind of tragedy that also caused like a, a similar amount of destruction, but both are not kind of addressed in this phantom zone of the sand and fire. He kind of gives away the game at the end when uh, one of the firefighters, uh, they put out a fire and then to, I, I think, to burn off the remaining oil, lights a fire again. And then, and then Herzog goes yeah. on some amazing kick about how, and these creatures can't live without fire. <laughs> so once the fire is doused, they must start it again. So, I mean... You have two movies here. You have kind of the visual documentary and the narrative fiction. And I think this is an interesting way to kind of begin a discussion that's going to continue throughout all, all of the documentaries we're going to talk about, which is Herzog's playing a little bit fast and loose, more so here than, than anywhere else. And, and here I think it's less problematic because I think he's gone, he's just gone ahead and made a narrative film. We're not supposed to believe anything that, that he's saying is fact. So I'm looking at the film as basically fiction. Mm -hmm. And on that basis, I found it fascinating and its images incredibly compelling. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that the same way about the imagery. Herzog has said earlier about how at certain points, Herzog has said that he's put these details in the movies to, quote-unquote, get at this deeper truth and ecstatic truth <laughs> to better or worse effect. And I want to give what might be a strange analogy to something about an earlier director we were talking about on the work of John Ford. And John Ford and, and to an extent, Sergio Leone, they were so good, so great at being able to get this pure human feeling through the landscape mm -hmm. that they do. And Lessons of Darkness is, I think, maybe one of the ultimate examples of a kind of fracture of what Herzog does. Whereas when you look at this image, you have these feelings that really resonate for you on this, on looking at these elements in this, uh, in this desert with these columns of fire and, and what have you. They're, they're very, they're very compelling. But it then combines with the look at the people who are in them, and that part becomes a little less believable or less trustworthy. There becomes some sort of distinction between the places that people go mm -hmm. and then the people that inhabit these worlds. It's, it's sort of they're pushed apart. And I think the way that the world and how the people react to them is maybe an interesting way of looking at at both Lessons of Darkness and the and the future movies that we go on. I do want to add that I think that between this and Fata Morgana, I like Morgana better because Morgana shows humanity in not just these like little weird creatures in the world, but also it shows humanity in their weirdness as well. And the concluding thing about where the 
uh, couple is playing these awful songs. And it also has a more of a progression than in Lessons of Darkness, which is works the imagery in a more consistent and you and um, even level. What the the two films have in common is this idea of taking natural uh, landscapes and 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 viewing them through a science fiction lens. But there's a lot more emphasis on people in Fata Morgana, uh, especially as it progresses there are like we discussed earlier some interviews uh some scenes with people but really uh, the vast majority of this film there are no people in it at all so the landscape is front and center mm -hmm. but now in his next film which is ostensibly a documentary the main subject is front and center in his film little Dieter needs to fly from 1977. I started walking back towards this village. Of course, I was happy. I was thinking I'm going to get my ring back. But I wasn't prepared of what happened next. We got in this village. Next thing, they find this village. Let's just beat the hell out of this guy. And then they grab this guy's hand. Violently, they grab his hand. They put him on top of the table. They put his finger there. They chopped his finger off. I'm leaping back. The blood is squirting out. The finger's laying on the ground. The North Vietnamese bends down, he picks up this finger, he pulls off this ring, he sticks it on my finger. I was speechless. I caused this misery. I felt horrible. He nodded to me, we turned around, we walked off. I realized right then and there, you just don't fool around with the Viet Congs. It's just a movie. Don't worry about it. And you still got your fingers and everything. This is chronicling the life of Dieter Dengler, a German immigrant who volunteered to fly for the Navy and was shot down over Laos near the beginning of America's involvement in the Vietnam War. Now, through interviews of a very specific nature with Herzog, Dengler recounts his time as a POW and his eventual harrowing escape. Right. Now, you said ostensibly a, a documentary. I, w I would say this is a documentary. I, I think we're going to talk about a certain penchant Herzog has uh, in his documentaries, which uh, I wouldn't argue calling foul on, which is that he will occasionally, because he has points to make, uh, ask his subjects to make those points for him. Mm -hmm. Now... This is <laughs> this is cheating. Yeah. It's also being done by somebody who has an incredible sense as an artist. So there's a bit of a trade-off going on, a, a lack of purity. And frankly, most documentaries, to one degree or another, have a lack of purity. To call documentaries completely true is a bit of a slippery slope. Now, Herzog makes, makes that slope more slippery than usual. Yeah. But I think what we're, having, what we're seeing in this film is the recollections and interviews of a fascinating man. And let's say that at some point through mutual agreement, some of the thoughts he expresses are Herzog's. Okay, that, that is happening. But we are also undeniably getting a sense of him as a person, of what he's been through, and the story he's telling. That's something that I don't quite get from this picture. 
Little Dieter Needs to Fly is taking the documentary form and using it in two incredibly fascinating ways that strike me as wrong and off-putting. <laughs> uh, one of which is Dieter Dengler himself. Dieter Dengler is a person who, it, and I'm not, I don't have any particular reason to believe the basics of his story, has gone through just a phenomenally awful travail during his period of captivity. However, Dengler, in the course of him relating this, he often presents this in the most, not just matter-of-fact, but enthusiastic manner possible. <laughs> there is like a, just a smile on his face as he just describes it. Oh, well, we were walking around in the jungle and we didn't have shoes. And by the end of like two weeks, our feet were bleeding. And, and then there would be these monsoons. <laughs> and, you mm -hmm. know, we'd be all covered with leeches. And uh, you just have to go and scrape them off. And, and the result for me was that I looked at this and like, I don't know how you can behave this way when a person experiencing one hundredth of the trauma that this person is describing to us so enthusiastically should have, by all means, put them in a coma for decades. Well, and we are talking about decades between the times of the events of the film in the late 60s right. and the 90s when the film came out. So... His happy-go-lucky nature seems to be something that's just his personality, which actually is, is one of the things that makes me even more interested in it, is because he does have this kind of unique personality, this unique way of telling a story. I don't think the movie presents him as without trauma, though, because there are some very interesting sequences where he, uh, probably the my favorite is, is where he keeps opening and shutting the door to his house. And he's like, see, I can do this. I can open and shut this door because I'm free. Mm -hmm. This is coming from a man who, who, who spent this time as a prisoner of war and could not leave, come and go. And so you could see somewhat the excitement in his eyes oh, yeah. at the idea that, that that somehow he's he's survived this you we also find out that he's basically hoarding survival equipment and food in his basement just in case something were to go down mm -hmm. so so there is there are definitely signs of trauma in the man but they are offset by this personality quirk, which I guess I found engaging and you were a little bit weirded out by. I, I'm very weirded out by it because there's so many people and we've, I think we've achieved an increased level of awareness upon like how when you go through a traumatic activity and how difficult it can be to go and express this. And so maybe it's even in relation to how things are open today and how people are so willing to express issues today of a guy who's so completely open to express the most god-awful things that would have happened to him. And you're you're right that there are these hints that, no, wait a minute, he's not completely cool about all this. This isn't just a fun adventure he's relating, like the, not just a door thing, but there's a moment where as part of his captivity, he nearly drowned by hanging upside down. And that's something notably where Herzog provides the narration. Mm -hmm. But that leads to the other really amazing dis point of difference between most documentaries. And I think it might be related to the first that 
sense of weirdness that I'm describing about like, how does a guy like this have such an open attitude to be so forthright Mm -hmm. in these atrocities that would cause another person to never tell anyone or even their closest relatives about what happened? What would lead a person to be so open? And maybe Werner Herzog decided that, well, let's see how open this guy is. Because part of this documentary talking about the life of Dieter goes to places in Dieter's life, Mm -hmm. which not only includes where he saw his first airplane and wanted to learn how to fly, but also includes the very jungles where he was taken captive and includes him being tied up and run around in simulations of the very tor- very same torture procedures. Yeah. What in the hell is going on? This, this is where the, the film kind of becomes a documentary about itself. Because... <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> because the, 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 now this is, this is weird, that he was willing to allow himself to, to be tied up and I think it kind of just speaks to his own eccentricness mm. that, that he would allow it because uh, a, a, another kind of uh, person, no matter how Herzog might have prodded, yeah. would not have even begun to entertain yes. this idea. Now, I think the result, though, is a very powerful form of storytelling. Because he is so good at describing his experiences, he's probably been describing these for decades so when he he meets with these uh we're not we're not sure are they are they actors are they just people from the local villages because they're actually holding weapons right but but per the instruction of herzog and dengler himself because dengler is kind of telling them how to treat him in order to visually recreate this experience my favorite part of this sequence is where he's discussing an incident where a a fellow got his his fingers chopped off. There's this local whom he's kind of touching his his fingers and saying, this horrifying thing happened. And you see the the, the local is very concerned. We're not entirely sure that he he, about the language difference, Mm -hmm. but finally he just puts his arm around him and goes, it's okay. See, you still have your fingers. Everything's going to be all right. And he said that he said that with such affection. And like these are just human moments that mm-hmm. that makes the film's eccentricities worth it for me. I like that scene too, especially since if you remember, it just follows that moment with the camera, Herzog's camera moving towards another person who's just cooking something off to the side, just mm-hmm. right after to just show. No, there's more of this world than than this incredibly dramatic, traumatic story that Dengler is relating, and and so I like what I really like what you said about yeah, it's a documentary that's sort of almost documenting itself as it's going, and I know I would love to see the documentary about the documentary of that said <laughs> documentary, which consists of 
Dieter Dangler and Werner Herzog having the debate upon like like writing out the contract of how much and how far he's going to go to go and uh, duplicate these ordeals. Now, now you should be with Dieter. Would you mind being tied up? Well, I don't know. How about to be the leeches? No, no leeches. <laughs> my so my on. sense, and, and and I can only judge by by what I saw in, in the film is that. Dieter was not, did not have to have his arm twisted. Is that Dieter wanted so badly to tell his story that he found Herzog's creativity fit in with his own will to, to describe what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no way to know this for sure, but but one of the things. I think is just true about Herzog documentaries is the, the, the personalities we are witnessing. You can have people say things, but you can't present them as somebody other than who they are. When we talked about the land of, of silence and darkness and uh, the, the old blind deaf w- woman who helped people with more severe forms of the disease. Mm-hmm. We had some issues with, with things that she had to describe, but in the end, she was who he, she, who she was. And I think the same is true of Dieter. The more I think about it, I'm talking it over with you, the more I think that Herzog was so captivated by that this guy is going through all, all these travails and horrible situations while not having a Klaus Kinski type attitude or reaction to these things that he was thinking, well, now wait a minute. What if I push him this far? (laughs) What if I push him this far? At what point does he go, Hey, the hell with it, Herzog, that's going too far. And in a form of a documentary, this is both not kosher as far as what we conventionally consider a documentary. However, I find it phenomenally interesting with how you explore, well, how these people feel and relate to events in their life and how willing they are to recreate events in their life says something interesting about their character. And I think at least this is maybe the earliest example of an approach to documentary that manifested itself tremendously well in a film a couple years back by uh, director Joshua Oppenheimer called The Act of Killing, where he looks at different hired killers who were slaughtered communist and communist sympathizers in Indonesia and then proposes they make a movie where they're the heroes Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you get to see them building this Indonesian version of springtime for Hitler as they get in sets and props to go and recreate these awful crimes as if they were heroic events. And the result on that movie, which is an astounding experience, is to help us push us out of our comfort zone as to what are we really seeing? What is the true essential truth behind uh, these reenactments or what do these people think is important? And I think we get the germ of that exploration of reliving the past in Little Dieter. That is a really good comparison. So next, Herzog will shift gears to a a different sort of warfare. (laughs) A bit of a more personal one. In My Best Fiend, released in 1999. 
Now I hate the killer's guts. I'll shriek into his face that I want to see him croak like the llama that he executed. He should be thrown alive to the crocodiles, exclamation point. The most venomous serpent should bite him and make his brain explode. No panther claws could rip open his throat. That could be much too good for him. No, the huge red ants should piss into his lying eyes and gobble up his balls and his guts. He should catch the plague, syphilis, malaria, yellow fever, leprosy. It's no use. The more I wish him the most gruesome death, the more he haunts me. Beautiful, yes. In in fact, uh, I I helped him along uh, a little bit in finding even more vile expletives. It's a documentary looking back at the many collaborations between Herzog and actor Klaus Kinski. The on-screen drama of films like Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and Fitzcarraldo were rivaled by behind-the-scenes war stories of Kinski's notorious outbursts and Herzog's willingness to go to any length to complete his films. Whereas the Lessons of Darkness, we were trying to express how the movie shows the madness of the world. This movie shows how maybe the world can barely contain the madness (laughs) of the people trying to make films in (laughs) that world. This may be my favorite, my personal favorite Herzog. Hmm. And I think the second gateway to people, if you enjoy Herzog, that way he approaches filmmaking and, and this reaches for like whatever crazy detail or mad moment that life can show up either in a documentary or a narrative film form. I think the ultimate gateway film for Herzog is still Fitzcarraldo. It's a great introduction to what Herzog's about. But if you see Fitzcarraldo and you go, this film and this filmmaker is so fascinating, so compelling to me. I want to know what Herzog is all about and what Kinski is all about. You get a glorious, wonderful representation of that of those guys and their relationship in this movie and among anything else it is hilarious <laughs> absolutely you see scenes from the earlier classic films and then you hear stories that have, have been retold in another documentary burden of dreams which was about the making of Fitzcarraldo, and it's also very recommended although not directed by her not directed by herzog my best fiend which by the way awesome title yeah (laughs) (laughs) because there was it was like a love-hate relationship and and it starts out with kinski doing some kind of weird one-man show where he's pretending to be jesus and he's going on these rants where he's screaming and shouting and and he it's on stage so it's theater but you look at it, especially when he's interacting with what seems to be some people from the audience. And you're like, is this acting or is he really going to fall off and hit this guy? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so, so we get this great introduction to Kinski's persona. Every time you see Kinski in a film, whether it's Herzog or not, uh, he had a small role in Leone's for a few dollars more. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and you just kind of see the veins popping out on his head. Uh And it's like this guy, even when he's holding back, which uh, the film describes Herzog instructing him to to do a nigiri, you could tell that there's this volcanic uh, explosion that's about to happen. Another thing that fascinates me about the beginning of this film is uh, Herzog brings his camera crew into uh, the, the the house where him and Kinski and a bunch of other up-and-coming filmmakers uh, yes. w- used to live and have weird adventure stories. And there's this nice uh, middle-aged couple living there now, and he's talking about all this. I kept thinking... This couple probably thinks that, that, that Herzog himself is crazy with these stories. He's just <laughs> entered his, he's entered their home and is now regaling them with the most wild stories in a way that, in a way that he just assumes it's like, of course, you already know all this. Yes, <laughs> yes. There is such great, absurdist humor to be had from Herzog relating tales of Kinski. Honestly, if it was a one-man show of Herzog just saying <laughs> these things, it would be a, it would be super enjoyable to behold because Herzog has that particular way of talking, a very accessible, German-tinged, monotone-type way of how making things sound like it should be the most natural kind of questions, but what the actual words are describing (laughs) are horrifically deranged. (laughs) And it's just such great fun to have this German couple who have don't have the slightest idea of all the madness that happened in this house. But just they're just being really polite in a way that to me evokes that very friendly German couple in National Lampoon's European vacation who had taken the Griswolds and taken for breakfast. <laughs> and then when the Griswolds leave, a who, who are those guys? <laughs> there, there's a moment there where Herzog is describing in intricate detail how Kinski would fl- flew in a rage and he absolutely demolished every single piece of plumbing in the bathroom that in the, of this apartment. And these, this German couple are, are glancing their eyes at each other as they go, <laughs> in subtitled German, they go, well, that's really something, wasn't it? <laughs> that, that must have been pretty wild. And Herzog, without missing a beat, immediately says, yes, he was truly a madman that was out of control, a menace to all that was involved in his vicinity. <laughs> Just- just and the movie is full of these moments where Herzog would just so calmly deliver all the crazy things that happened with his collaboration with Kinski, including the time he threatened Kinski with a gun to keep him on the set, the time that Kinski bought uh, thousands of dollars worth of camping equipment so he could be in the jungle in Fitzgeraldo. And then as Herzog would relate, he lasted then four hours and then ran off screaming <laughs> to his hotel room where he stayed for the rest of the week. <laughs> I, I also like the bit where they're talking about uh, the writing of Kinski's memoirs, where apparently, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where apparently Kinski, um, decided to take Werner Herzog to task and call him every name in the book yeah. and do a written <laughs> outburst of ranting against uh, Werner Herzog. But according to Herzog, 
they actually wrote, <laughs> he was there to help him write it. <laughs> and they were like, well, we need, we need to sell this thing. What are some names I could call you to make this sound even crazier? Exactly. And Herzog is providing those. So, and, and that kind of fits in with, you do see a few scenes of, of affection between the two men where, and there had to have been some because they worked together, uh, over the course of around, of about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And they kept going back again and again into into this partnership that include that included, and we we see clips of this too. These insane outbursts where everything has to stop on the set so that Kinski can rage against a cameraman. Mm-hmm. It is one of the greatest depictions of filmmaking frenemies that has ever been put. <laughs> on uh, a movie screen and in a re- it's a really interesting when you look at this film as the film that follows little Dieter needs to fly whereas Dieter Dengler is the subject here Herzog trains this kind this sense of well let's go look in the past by physically visiting the past upon himself right this is why mm-hmm. I think this is such a great gateway for people to learn more about Herzog because as Herzog relates the events of that happened in Fitzcarraldo and Aguirre, he visits those places and you get a chance, a great introduction to see these locations and have Herzog's recollection of those. And it's a great way of comparing Herzog's verbal depictions from a distance versus the real events. But this time, the real events uh, were not stock footage that were available for Vietnam, but they were the actual footage of the movies. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's a really, really interesting point of comparison to it. And I like how Herzog in this movie trains it on himself. This may be the one of the most, by that virtue, one of his most self-reflective films. And he is, as we've described on this podcast and the other one, he is a fascinating individual. So he is a great subject for a documentary, and if he's the filmmaker about it, mm-hmm. so be it. it. It's kind of not the birth, but the evolution of Herzog as a public figure. Mm. Because when all these classic films we talked about in part one came out, he was not acting in them, he was the behind the scenes presence. But starting with, with, with My Best Fiend and then blossoming in, in the next movie we're going to talk about, we, we get this Herzog the speaker thing. Herzog the person yeah. that people will do impressions of. And he is, you, you described it perfectly in that he's saying the most horrifying things in, in the kindest voice. Mm-hmm. He, he kind of almost, it could be said, saved the German accent for a lot of uh, a lot of English speakers because look, we we don't get in uh, America a lot of exposure to modern German culture. What we do get is World War II and Nazi imagery and a lot of Kinski-esque screaming and shouting. But what, what's happened in Germany and Austria since then is that that ugliness of even even the voice of Hitler uh, culturally affected uh, the way people spoke. And so the soft-spokenness became part of, of the German culture. And I think 
became presented to the English-speaking world very much through the celebrity of Werner Herzog. Mm, oh, man, that's... I think that was just a great point. With the German culture being so often represented by the Dieter of Michael Myers' Touch My Monkey-liking <laughs> character from Saturday Night Live, Her Werner Herzog is such a better ambassador <laughs> of, of a German outlook and a uh, German inflection on things. And I think you are absolutely spot on in this is a transition where Herzog makes us aware of his presence as a filmmaker, which to an extent he did not do in his documentary subjects. It's a figure that sometimes documentaries are aware of their that the people filming them are a presence. And here is the start of establishing the presence. And I think from here on, he becomes a presence in his documentary films. And that transition will never be more evident than in the next film we're going to discuss. Animals rule, Timothy conquered. Fuck you, Park Service. Okay. It is clear to me that the Park Service is not Treadwell's real enemy. There's a larger, more implacable adversary out there, the people's world and civilization. Ah, Timothy, I'm getting a bad feeling about you. He only has mockery and contempt for it. Well, I saw you on David Letterman. You're <laughs> fairly entertaining. His rage is almost incandescent, artistic. The actor in his film has taken over from the filmmaker. I have seen this madness before on a film set. But Treadwell is not an actor in opposition to a director or a producer. He's fighting civilization itself. Grizzly Man, released in 2005, is a documentary that focuses on Timothy Treadwell whose affection for grizzly bears led him to interact and film the wild creatures over a number of years until he and his girlfriend were killed by one. Through interviews and Treadwell's own footage, Herzog explores the implications of trying to tame the wild. To the extent that documentaries become popular, this one actually became pretty popular. And... It's easy to see why. Uh, Timothy Treadwell's story is fascinating, not just because of, of how he died, which which I think is something a lot of folks have like a morbid curiosity about, but also his larger-than-life personality. This movie mostly consists of footage not shot by Herzog, but shot by Timothy Treadwell himself, of him in the wild with either bears or his uh, fox friends. Mm -hmm. And because you know very quickly from the beginning what his fate is, almost every scene is imbued with foreboding of that because you see how recklessly he acts around the bears, how he's too close in their territory, how he has seems to have this urge to reach out and touch them, how he feels that if he's only a dominant enough, he can hold his own psychologically with, with the wild animals. The, the film combines 
Treadwell's footage and interviews uh, with his loved ones to create really a, a, a fascinating portrait that uh, fits into a lot of Herzogian themes. It does. In fact, I would go and venture to say this is the Herzog film I like the least. Hmm. And part of the reason that I don't like it is because of that very thing, Brad. It fits in to Herzog's themes a little to maybe more than a little too well. We've talked about how Herzog has shown a willingness to go beyond the ideals of a documentary or some what would some would say with the ideals of a documentary towards representing truthful things to go to some deeper elements that Herzog wants to emphasize. And now that we've talked about My Best Fiend and Little Dieter, we've now we're seeing like this increased presence of Herzog himself, the documentarian, as a figure in this story. He's a part he's not a casual observer. He's a participant. Mm -hmm. And here I think he takes several steps too far. This is a feeling that I get out of Grizzly Man, a feeling that this director is giving me a bill of goods of something that he's interested in, and he's leaving the truth by the wayside to a degree that I don't think is appropriate for a documentaries, because it's, and why do I think it now? I just said that Dieter and My Best Fiend explore ways of looking at things in different ways and that you can enhance it. But here I kind of think that Herzog's altruism may betray him because he has been so well-focused in these films about, especially films on Kinski's, of madmen who are fighting against nature, and but, but they are so foolish to think that they can control it and nature will ultimately defeat them which just so happens to be exactly <laughs> the story of Grizzly Man, to the extent that Timothy Treadwell's blonde hair may give him a Kinski-esque resemblance, as well as Treadwell's periodic rantings, which, to mm -hmm. be fair, he filmed himself. <laughs> and I really want to hit that point home, because I think that this is the film where you're raising the most objection it is interesting. And I, and I have to, to, to defer with you on it is because Herzog has the least opportunity for this kind of manipulation because so much of the footage is of Treadwell is shot by Treadwell. There is no Herzog influence on these footage. What, I mean, there is certainly the decision of what footage to show and what footage not to show. But even if we assume that the footage on the cutting room floor is of Treadwell being eminently reasonable and professional, which I somewhat doubt based, <laughs> based on the footage that we have seen. But yes. But, but, based on, but based on that footage, I think I cannot blame Herzog for having found a subject that really does fit into those themes. I, I, don't, th I don't think it's forced. Hmm. Treadwell is 
the definition of a man who doesn't understand his place in the natural world. And he's not presented all negatively. Uh, Herzog has respects his sincerity, uh, respects him as a filmmaker. There are points when when he does try to indicate that this was a, a loving, uh, good-hearted individual. But it's very hard to see the Treadwell footage and not come out with the reaction that this was a man who was reckless, did not understand the environment he claimed to be an expert in, did not understand the animals that he had so much affection for, which led not only to the tragedy of of his own death, but of his girlfriend as well, who was very much an innocent victim in all this. Oh, to be sure, that the girlfriend had by far received the worst of it by expecting an area of safety or an or an atmosphere of safety that Treadwell was not equipped to provide, to say the very least. But I would beg to differ for you on the idea that he, that Herzog fairly engages on his subject, because while showing certain footage that Treadwell had filmed, most charmingly a fox running, his fox friend running after him, he uh, Treadwell had just captured the fox running up in, uh, while up while the camera was upside down, and mm-hmm. it, and it just is just this wonderful vibrancy of nature that you would almost expect out of a very meticulous Disney animation and yet there it just seemed to sprout out right from the film itself so that was that was very wonderfully depicted but as the film goes on Herzog just gives in more and more details on Treadwell's life to strip away the any veneer about this guy as being a competent knowledgeable individual and as just a mad crazed attention getting fool from the interview with one ranger who mm-hmm. said that everyone was angry at this guy for his antics to pointing out that he was on his medication and then he had like law that he had uh, not had his medication for months thereby giving a chemical out, as I, at least as I see it, to say, well, see, he, he wasn't on his pills, so he, just, of course he went crazy. And then a Coupe de Gracie moment by the end where he points out that Treadwell had, was not his real name, and he had auditioned for the role of Woody. Not even the dumb bartender from Cheers, but the replacement dumb bartender from Cheers. Just, was a little bit of a thumb on the scale for me just to say, look at this guy. He's just there to just get out attention. And when he couldn't get it in Hollywood, he just found another way to do it by uh, interacting with these bears. Well, I I don't think that's what the film portrays. Mm. I, I do think all those details you give are fair and are true. All of those things really did happen. And I guess the question is, how harshly does does Herzog judge Treadwell? And I think the answer is harsh, but, but not as harsh as I think you're describing. Because I do think that he allows moments of humanity in. 
and he allows us to see his sensitive side and his vulnerable side. But just as that side of a person is probably less important in one's job and in one's passion of protecting wildlife, particularly wildlife as dangerous and deadly as grizzly bears. The bottom line for me is how he behaves in pursuance of his interaction with these bears. And there's just ample evidence of gross irresponsibility that he does seem in many scenes to be particularly unhinged. Herzog didn't make that up. He really was unhinged in, in, in that footage. Now, there may be other footage of him being perfectly rational, but if you cannot maintain any kind of rational, professional distance in the company of grizzly bears, then the tragic result is not surprising. Yeah, but I think what key is that any professional distance of between these bears, but the any that you and I and people viewing Grizzly Man are is the choices that Herzog made. And Herzog also explicitly made those choices to not, for example, lead with the idea that Treadwell was a failed Hollywood actor or that the park rangers had misgivings about his mission, Mm -hmm. but he methodically does this. At least that's something that I feel that he puts those at certain moments in the movie to diminish him and make him more and more foolish. But importantly, more and more of the classic Herzogian human fool Mm -hmm. raging against nature, thinking that he could tame it. In a way, I think that impulse that got him to look at Dieter Dengler's enthusiasm towards relating his story and going, well, how far can I go with this? How far can I push his enthusiasm for relating this story? I think he found a similar impulse in Grizzly Man. And the idea, well, I see this Aguirian impulse towards I can go and control nature in a way I can't control my life as a a would-be actor in Hollywood. But then, to maybe not the film's detriment, but I think to the documentary's detriment, I think Herzog pursues it too much to just show a land of chaos and madness to an extent that doesn't quite do service for the real guy. When I first saw Grizzly Man, I did not know the story of Timothy Treadwell. So I this is just a feeling that I had to go, now wait a minute, is this guy really this maniacal? Talking about bears in such huggy-lovey terms and and just so adoring and so oblivious to the reckless actions that, as you describe so accurately, the footage is accurately describing. And so I looked more into the issue, and there was a contingent of people who knew Timothy Treadwell from his days there on the refuge, who's, who were are quite critical of Herzog and his portrayal. They said that that Treadwell was very, very aware of the dangers that a bear could do, that he's that he had run off from bears, that he'd been termed affectionately, 
and that he had a really big sense of self-deprecation of, oh, look at me, I'm just hanging in the woods with the bears, what, what kind of a crazy guy am I? None of which of that self-deprecation is really evident in Grizzly Man. It's a guy who's very, very dedicated to his bear-based mission, who later has the motivations of the bear mission kind of stripped away uh, from it. Now, but to Herzog's credit, actually, he did film, and I know there's at least some editions of Grizzly Man, he actually filmed a documentary of those very people mm-hmm. to provide a voice for such criticism for Herzog's perspective. Yeah, I would imagine were I, were I friends with Timothy Treadwell, probably continued grieving over over uh, his loss that a documentary that had critical elements um might rub me the wrong way as well and so i understand why why there would be people in his life who who would object like that although his parents are part of the documentary his ex-girlfriend who uh, seemed to be one of the closest people to him were part of the documentary and by its very nature a documentary never portrays the complete story every documentarian has to make a decision of what to what to leave in the film and what to leave on the cutting floor Mm -hmm. and i have no doubt that herzog's themes were part of his considerations in those decisions. I also have no doubt that as a documentarian, as a filmmaker, he is within his artistic rights to make those decisions, particularly uh, since what we are seeing is clearly unaltered footage. Mm, that I, I mean, I think we're getting to the real heart of like this potential of the dangers or things that people need to keep in mind for the documentary form. Like you're right. They, they really, he didn't edit it. He didn't cut these things, these individual scenes to make Treadwell look bad, but there is a potential for other footage that just by virtue of all the footage that Treadwell made that he did not make. Mm -hmm. And then you introduce this other element, though, which is when Herzog shows footage of the various other people involved in Treadwell's life. And this is footage that Herzog does. And I found when I watched it that Herzog gives the same slant. The idea that Alaska is this wilderness full of fools and madmen <laughs> embracing chaos and, and uh, leaving themselves bereft within its wake. And I felt that from character the character, the character from the helicopter pilot whose mustache is just a little bit too bushy to this doctor who is relay, who performed the autopsy, who manages to film these entire scenes, both being very enthusiastic and never, ever blinking, <laughs> as he just describes in a voice like Ben Stein from Ferris Bueller. So then the bear went and bit Treadwell on top of his whole head. <laughs> well, that's the fascinating things about documentaries, though, is that you're you're not dealing with polished actors. You're well, dealing with real people, and mm. and these personality quirks 
are not something that Herzog added to the footage. Mm. They are the way these people behave on camera. Now, maybe maybe they're nervous because they're on camera. That that that's very possible. But I actually think the type of eccentric people we get to meet in documentaries is one of the greatest things about the format. <laughs> mm, yeah, and I guess what where it's rubbing me the wrong way in Grizzly Man, though, is that all the different quirkiness is so tied in to themes that have interested Herzog in a way that I feel is ultimately dishonest to, like you had said, the randomness and the distinctly crazy way everyone can have like these different reactions. And I think it manifests itself and ties itself in a way of Herzog's growing knowledge of his own presence in the movies, I think, singular nadir, when Herzog presents the former girlfriend of Timothy Treadwell with the very audio tape of Treadwell's last moments as the bear had attacked because Treadwell had the camera rolling when when the attack had happened just inadvertently and the audio managed to capture that moment. And we see Herzog listening to this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then when he puts down the headphones, you see him indicate to the ex-girlfriend, you must never listen to this. The implication I... God documentarian Herzog have deemed that you shouldn't hear it. It gave this sense of, I'm going to say what the hell you're going to see in this documentary in a kind of a very distasteful way that I most relate to the moment in Bowling for Columbine where Michael Moore chases an elderly um, Charlton Heston away from the interview while persisting in his questions. A sense that, like, I have the power of documenting this moment, and I'm going to tell you what you, what you, a person who is in a relationship with Treadwell, get to experience or don't get to experience out of that. And I felt that was some senses of wrong of what he did. It will, it will not surprise you that, that I do not feel that way. Okay. I, I think there's two, two points to make about that sequence. One is which is that it is incredibly powerful. It is a way to help us as an audience viscerally understand what happened without being graphic without putting us through the ordeal of hearing it ourselves or, or God forbid there isn't visual footage, but God forbid seeing such footage. There's a theatricality to it in, in the way it's communicating to us, but on a more kind of human level, it's damn good advice. And the, the, the ex-girlfriend felt thankful that he had given her that advice and agreed with it. He didn't ordain it. He didn't insist on it. He basically indicated to her that this is something that would traumatize her if, if she listened to it, which I, I, I'm pretty sure he's right about. And it's clear in the interaction that they had gotten to know each other a bit and, uh, and become on a friendly basis. And, she took it more as fatherly advice uh, 
than something ordained from Herzog, the director. Yeah. I mean, I felt that, like, the way she dealt with Herzog was of this kind of simpering, abiscuous nature that also rang a little weird for me. And it just tied in with how so many of these people that Herzog is depicting on this was they're weird. It's just so odd. Isn't it odd about all these odd people in this odd place? So, and I felt her accommodation towards Herzog was a little one-sided as well, because while you very well may be right that it's good advice to not have that, I think when you get such a very heavy question about footage of this horrible event and who gets to witnesses and who doesn't, I feel you should have that as an avenue to have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. That there should be more of a give and take between this woman who, after all, had way more of a relationship than Treadwell than Herzog did. There should have been more of a discussion, more of a conversation about that footage. And But we don't see that. We see, simply see her acquiesce towards the wishes of Herzog. And that's that's her decision. I mean, and who knows? Maybe one day she actually listened to it. Maybe she didn't destroy it like Herzog suggested. We don't know that. That's after the film. But she she certainly could have easily discounted his advice. But again, that's the feeling that I, she may have, but we don't see that. <laughs> see, mm-hmm. what we see is is that the uh, what we see in the movie is a documentarian saying you should see this, not that, and the person going, "Why, yes, I agree with your, I agree with your wishes." <laughs> now, I want to bring up that there is a very, very fun parody of Grizzly Man called Grizzly Bear Man mm-hmm. that mines a lot of humor from this, a lot of humor from this one, albeit of a dark variety. Where, whereas, like uh, the the Herzog character goes uh, and says, "Now I've made my latest masterpiece." Now, come on, I should have had an award years ago for leading a (laughs) boat across a mountain. Give me some props. (laughs) But in this depiction of the scene, he says, here are these these papers that are showing the scene, and you must never look at these papers. But then he trips, and the papers fall on her lap. He goes, oh, no, oh, no. And then it cuts to him going and pulling out this book, saying, you must never read this book. Never read this book. He's like, why, Werner? Is it talk about Timmy? And Herzog said, no, this is the Da Vinci Code. It's a piece of garbage. (laughs) (laughs) But there's one part that from our conversation today that really has gotten me to reevaluate some part of Grizzly Man, which is that, in a way, this is kind of the inverse of Lessons of Darkness. Because where Lessons of Darkness uses the idea of the world, the environment that these characters are in, as a point of foreboding, while the foreboding comes from the suspense in Grizzly Man of us knowing the plight of Timothy Treadwell, the world that he inhabits is almost rapturously delivered it's quite magnificent at times these massive vistas and Mm -hmm. wonderful moments of in a poetic level of nature and it's done with a kick-ass soundtrack by two legendary guitarists richard thompson and henry kaiser that i think as in terms of a film that provides a mood and a sense of place. It's a documentary that does one of that aspect better than most. Absolutely. Uh, The new footage and Treadwell's footage 
are very complementary to each other. And we're debating the ethical ramifications of a lot of this, but I think we agree just as filmmaking, it's something pretty spectacular. One moment that I think shows Herzog's wisdom as a filmmaker is the the controversial scene we just discussed is followed by uh, an epic battle between two bears, full-size, ferocious grizzlies, where you, for the first and really for the only time in the film, see them in full fury. And then, without being too literal, we see... Oh my God, if these bears could do this to each other, what could they do to a person? Yeah. And by the end of the film, it with a really charming song that I believe was composed by the helicopter pilot himself, mm-hmm. I think we turn towards a level of doomed romanticism for Treadwell for all of his misguided attitudes about nature. At the very, very end... Herzog makes explicit what I think he was trying to effect and I think effectively successfully drew in by showing these landscapes is to show the sort of majesty of nature, something that would draw a human in even to his doom that he was something that he was implying through the landscape and the music and the presentation of this part of the world Herzog makes compelling and gives us a sense of what may have put in Treadwell, sort of the positivity that Treadwell tread recklessly into. Mm -hmm. Well, we will not have to uh, be too concerned about the ethics of documentary filmmaking as we discuss our next film, because it is not a documentary. It is Rescue Dawn, released in 2006. Yes. I'm an American citizen, and I love my country. But why are you in this war against us? I never wanted to go to war. I never wanted to go to... I saw enough as a child. I only wanted to fly. Then you should sign this. Condemning the imperialistic aggression of the corrupt and debased political establishment of the United States. What else would you call it? I guess innocent children and the peace-loving working classes. No, I cannot sign this. I cannot sign it. If you signed this, we would be your friends. You could be released in two weeks if you promise. I cannot sign this. It's against my, uh... What? I mean, what is in here? What is in here? I love America. America gave me wings. I will not sign it. Absolutely not. No way. It's a narrative film retelling the events described in Herzog's documentary, Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Here, Christian Bale plays Dieter, and Steve Zahn is his fellow POW, Dwayne, both of whom escape from their captors, only to face further perils in the jungle while hoping against hope to be rescued. While this isn't a documentary, this is an amazing comparison to Little Dieter Needs to Fly. And what I think makes it so amazing is it takes those things that were missing, that could not be portrayed or wouldn't be portrayed in Dieter, and in a fiction film, makes them viscerally 
powerful and present through what I think is some really effective filmmaking on Herzog to show the squalor and desperation of these POWs in their plight. I do think it's effective filmmaking. I think the jungle scenes have a sense of reality. The danger uh, the prisoners are in is palpable. But at the same time, I think this might be Herzog's most conventional film. There have been a lot of Hollywood films about Vietnam, about POWs, everything from The Deer Hunter to Platoon that came before this. I don't really mean this as a criticism. I I think it handles the material very well, but Herzog usually offers us things we have never seen before. And maybe that's an unfair standard to hold him to, Mm. but I I felt that that wasn't happening here. And I felt that more so after watching little Dieter needs to fly. And I guess we have somewhat uh, inverse opinions on the two films as compared to each other. For me, the documentary is far more powerful than the narrative film. So my advice is to see Rescue Dawn first. Because for for me, I, I had much more appreciation for it when I saw it before having seen Little Dieter because that unique personal touch that we discussed in the earlier film mm-hmm. is transferred into a more conventional film language here. And if you haven't seen it, you don't know what it's what's lost in the translation. But I found the film more conventional based on having seen Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Uh-huh. Now, let me ask you, have you seen, did you see Little Dieter first or did you see uh, Rescue Dawn first? I saw Rescue Dawn first. It never was one of my favorites. I always thought it was a good, solid film. It didn't blow me away, but I find myself a little bit harsher on it with my last viewing after having seen Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Okay. I also saw Rescue Dawn before Little Dieter. When I saw Rescue Dawn, though, I was already familiar with Herzog. I was familiar with Herzog's interests. I was familiar with how Herzog would be able to dive in to a horrifically chaotic situ- uh, environment and work his way through or see what happens on his way through. And I think it's with that spirit that I do feel that Rescue Dawn does something more than what the conventional POW film does, which is that Herzog's film gives a bigger sense of vermilitude towards the sheer way a human being can be wrecked, destroyed, diminished, and put to a breaking point and beyond by the POW experience. In Rescue Dawn, he has found a perfect set of actors to do this. Christian Bale is a guy who will, who has demonstrated from films from like The Machinist to American Psycho to Batman, 
that if the film requires him to go and cut his own head off during the <laughs> role, he will do that. <laughs> if it requires him to wear eight, 80 different wigs uh, in the uh, David O. Russell film American Hustle, he's going to do that. He will do what's necessary for that the director and the story and the script uh, implies him to do. And this requires him to do a lot. It is such a fascinating comparison to see um, uh, Dieter Dangler in Little Dieter as he, while he is tied up and he's chased through the woods, it's still the actions of an older man attempting to duplicate maybe the sense memory of these things and to visually witness Christian Bale get more haggard and drawn and scrawny and, um, and, and dirtier. As the events of the movie goes on, to watch him literally get depicted through these torturous events, which include him being dragged behind by an ox. And so this is a such a fascinating inversion of what the document what the documentary was doing, because in one case, you're seeing a person in the setting and he's relating these things, but here you're seeing a Hollywood actor, but he's really, really doing these things. He's really, really being put through the ringer here. And he's also expressing uh something that that you found disconcerting in in little Dieter, which is his uh happy-go-lucky attitude because i think you could see christian bale trying to uh replicate that that a bit mm-hmm. but but i i do need to to echo the commitment of the actors here because you're right on, on target with that they through the physicality of these roles they have gone above and beyond. And I'd like to particularly call out Jeremy Davies, who I think gives the best performance in the film. He is a soldier who has been there longer than the others and as a result is more traumatized by his experience. He also, uh, on a physical level, he's a, a, a thin man in other roles and he lost enough weight to make himself uh, upsettingly thin, almost like Christian Bale himself did in the film The, the Machinist. Davies has these, these, these haunted eyes and this intensity that absolutely captivates every, every time he's uh, dealing with his fellow actors. It is a performance of a person broken down by the wartime experience that is the equal of Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal of Freddy Quell in The Master, minus what looks to be 75 to 90 pounds. I swear, there's scenes where this guy looks like he's 75 pounds, and you feel from his performance that he is on his last wits. Oh, and he is bouncing between extremes of a sheer survival instinct to mistrust, to desperation, to just sheer non-awareness of where he is. He is an example of humanity at its last rope in this particularly horrible situation. It's astounding to watch to an extent that you literally straight up worry about him and you're just think, God, I hope the guy had a cheeseburger when he was done. One would hope, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, you're so right about Davies. It, it is, And even though, like, 
Bale is no slouch in the um, self-degradation yeah. department. And they all do. Steve Zahn also lost tremendous amounts of weight for the role. I He's mean, very it, effective dramatically, yes. Yeah, and, and, and I think the acting is, is the film's best feature. I think everybody viewed this as an important film and something they were willing to sacrifice their own personal comfort yes. in order to deliver these amazing performances. And, and, and Herzog is always going to be able to film the jungle in a yeah. compelling way. Now, is it as compelling as he filmed it in Aguirre, the wrath of God? I, I would say no, mm. but at the same time, right. There's, there's never a question of, is this uh, on location or in a studio? This Very is Herzog true. again, utilizing his location. Yeah. If you could take that essence of, of the madness of man in conflict against nature that Aguirre did so well and put it as a spice form (laughs) (laughs) and then you sprinkle it on a POW story. That's kind of what I think that sensibility enhances a story that maybe we've seen several times before in the, the basic plot line of Rescue Dawn, but you get that skirting to the edge of madness in there and you're right you never doubt when these guys are on are, are stuck on our dilapidated raft on the rapids or or wandering barefoot for for days through the jungle and there's a very in, if interesting feature on the documentary which shows that Herzog as the director would not go put these actors through a situation without walking through these rivers and and looking at these rapids himself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great to see a guy being able to make sure that he can put himself through these things first. Despite being an, an older director, he's still willing to dive in on this situation. And I feel that through his abilities, he does a great enhancement to a story that to this story such that by the end when Dangler meets up with people who are so happy that he was rescued, spoiler alert, <laughs> that I felt very thrilled in it in a way that I felt maybe was more a little more visceral than I would say in, a, in another movie because I felt better for Bale that he had survived the shoot. Hmm. In a way that maybe helped that uh, that the dang that Dangler had survived in the course of the story. Yeah, so I think we're we're recommending both films. Yeah, just the opposite one uh, for each of us. <laughs> that's was, that, that's right. Although yeah. I would agree with you, Brad, that you should see Rescue Dawn first, and you get the front and center view of that situation, and then when you see Little Dieter, you'll both realize this stuff actually happened to a real guy. And then get the enhanced view of look at this guy's perspective. And how does a guy have that perspective going through the mm-hmm. stuff that you would see with your own eyes in a previous movie? And you also get to see how a lot of the little moments in Rescue Dawn are actually depictions of things described in Little Dieter, like how to get out of handcuffs. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Burzog moves, though, from this film to go into a more straightforward documentary exploration. And he goes as far south as you possibly can (laughs) on it in his film Encounters at the End of the World from 2007. Dr. Indy, 
is there such thing as insanity among penguins? I try to avoid the definition of insanity or derangement. I don't mean that uh, a penguin might believe he, he or she is Lenin, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. But uh, could they just go crazy because they've had enough of their colony? Um, well, I've never seen a penguin bashing its head against a rock. Um, they do get disoriented. They end up in places they shouldn't be, long way from the ocean. One of these disoriented or deranged penguins showed up at the New Harbor diving camp, already some 80 kilometers away from where it should be. for the humans are do not disturb or hold up the penguin stand still and let him go on his way and here he's heading off into the interior of the vast continent with 5,000 kilometers ahead of him he's heading towards certain death Him and his team go all the way into Antarctica to explore the frozen wilderness on icebergs and under the sea, while at the same time introducing us to a varied group of scientists, researchers, and others who have made the South Pole at least their temporary home. So this film becomes kind of a template for a lot of Herzog's films to come, kind of what we might think of as a, nat a nature film, the kind of thing you'd see on uh, PBS or way back in the day from, from Disney. Yeah. But with very distinctive Herzog touches. And when Herzog has Antarctica to work with and gets to send his divers underwater and follow the seals and look at the glaciers. What he did so extraordinarily earlier in his career in using the environment to solidify a, a, a time and place, he's able to do through these exotic locations, which his camera has such a, a keen eye for. But then he does more. Because he continues personalizing it. He's, again, the main character in his documentary. He's talking about what he expected to see versus what he's seeing. So the first thing we see is this basically an industrial camp of workers and people who have uh, come from all different walks of life, mostly scientists and researchers, in order to either fulfill their career goals or sometimes just to fulfill their personal desires. One person said something to the effect of, if you shake people up enough, they'll all end up going, uh, falling down as far south as possible. Right. <laughs> and That's so right. It, it's very cool how Herzog combines the majestic imagery with these human stories. 
yeah, as we're talking over on these these films of Herzog on this episode, that dichotomy I find becomes very very prevalent in this one. These Herzog gives you these astounding imagery of Antarctica, many of which you had never seen before, and even takes the notion of the, as he calls it, the fluffy little penguins, <laughs> and gives it a dark twist. There is a really astounding scene of this little penguin guy who has been misdirected to where the water is, and but the scientists are trained to not interfere. Mm -hmm. So this cute little penguin is flapping his arms as he's walking, as Herzog relates... He is walking 2,000 miles inland where he will surely perish. But yet it looks really cute, but it's such a vast white wasteland where he's uh, doing this fun waddling. This this film came out shortly after the more family-friendly nature documentary March of the Penguins, mm -hmm. and that seems to have been on his mind to treat the penguins somewhat differently in this film. So he, he had two questions he was very curious about. Is one, are there gay penguins? And right. two, do penguins go insane? And yeah. the, the researcher had to kind of clarify what exactly he meant by that. Yeah. <laughs> and Herzog seemed to have a very particular image of what he thought penguins going insane might look like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I have to admit, um, I do get a sense that Herzog had a similar attitude in mind for these people in, South, in Antarctica that he did with the Alaskan denizens of Grizzly Man. But I think it works a lot better here. Both because he's talking with more people who are more distinct in their attitudes, but also because he is so effective at showing Antarctica as a region which is not just vast and full of wild nature that we understand, but to show it in a way that it has sights and visions and wonders as in a place we can barely even try to understand. He talks about the microscopic world, and we see footage of one-celled creatures, and Herzog describes them with the same drama as he does the alien creatures and lessons of darkness. Yes. Because to Herzog, these micro Creatures are, are, are just as alien and just as fascinating. That's right. But whereas in Lessons of Darkness, Herzog effectively takes things that we are familiar with and presents them in a way to make them seem odd and strange. Here we're straight up seeing odd and strange sights <laughs> that we've never seen before. Like a volcano in Antarctica. Like these undersea areas where where ice and, and, and deposits have collected into these mag almost magical columns where light is reflecting in a thousand crystalline ways, and the seafloor where these multi-legged starfish creatures are slowly skittering away. It's such a depiction of an alien landscape, but it's right here on Earth. And in the result of viewing these things... The oddball relations of these people, first off, 
only Herzog would consider to interview the bus driver to the Antarctic <laughs> base. Right. Who has a very Herzogian story about how, well, he nearly got killed. <laughs> and uh, maybe one of his fellow people, uh, when he was uh, running a bus in Bolivia, was not so lucky. It makes you go, hmm, as well as a lady in the base who related how she traveled through Colombia while sitting inside a oil pipe on a truck <laughs> and shows her talent for hiding in a bag yes, to get to an airport. a contortionist uh, among among her scientific uh, talents. Exactly. Um, and, in an, and in a moment that both echoes the two guitarists from Grizzly Man and the younger son from Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven, there's two scientists who decide upon making an important discovery upon these microorganisms, decide to have a rock concert on top of one of the sheds where they made this discovery, and you get a chance to see these two people playing electric guitar in a uh, minus 25 degree outside atmosphere <laughs> you know what i think this hammers home is how useful being a great director of fiction films is to being a great director of documentaries i find the same thing is true when uh martin scorsese and spike lee move into documentaries okay They're, they are they are so good at it but maybe in a little bit of a different way than uh somebody like errol morris or the the Maisels would handle because mm -hmm. they understand the flair for the dramatic they understand uh -huh. what becomes cinematic so when you talk about those guys uh who who take their instruments and start playing up on the roof in the middle of antarctica yeah this is not just something that is true to their characters but it's cinematic and yeah. wonderfully contrasts with the natural wonders we're seeing so this is really a, a complete film and, and i think one of herzog's best Mm -hmm. And one of the ways it's so great is it's a way that he makes the idea of people being lost, I think by working it in, more, in a more symbolic way. Therefore, I, I respond to it a lot better than what I feel is like exploiting a person's life uh, to a degree that he did in Grizzly Man. Because right, the element of tragedy isn't present here. It's right. Just, yeah. It, but it opens up to this idea of tragedy because you don't see in the penguin example I delivered, you don't see the penguin perish, but you, you know that that's what's going to be the destination. And there's a really cool scene. Once again, only Herzog would decide if you're going to go to a far off land, you're going to film the orientation of how you have to adjust to that <laughs> land. And that is where you have to adjust to what happens when it's supposed to be a raging blizzard outside and you can't see your hand in front of your face. So you have to practice this stuff. And how do you practice it? Is that everyone is, has to be uh, in line, a single line on a tow rope. Mm -hmm. And to simulate the blizzard environments, they all wear these standard white <laughs> paint buckets yep. that all have different cartoonish eyes and noses. <laughs> And so you're in, in the absolute bright daylight of a beautiful looking, although I'm sure it'll be very cold, Antarctic morning, you see these this line of people, all with these different buckets, <laughs> moving this way and that, 
to try and make it to this outpost that they're nowhere near, even though it's in reality only about 50 feet away. To me, this is a crazy analogy, but I'm going to throw it out there. It's this crazy way of taking a Herzogian theme to the guys running along the ridge from the Seventh Seal. Uh. <laughs> and, and it's just right there in front of us and gives us this impression of how it feels to be lost and out of control, but in a humorous way, in a thoughtful way, maybe a more conceptual way. And maybe that's why I more respond to it right. than, than in putting in, the, uh, say, the details of a person's life. And he is just so able to take these basic materials and maybe more on the natural materials and make it seem strange. Just like two things that come to mind for me that I want to relate upon encounters, which, by the way, you should see just in terms of the travelogue on Antarctica. You've never seen Antarctica like this. One is which they go to this volcano. And there's one guy just describing that, okay, every so often... The volcano erupts, mm -hmm. hot rocks that fly in, and as he calmly relates that what you need to do is just always watch these giant pieces of rock and then just step to the side. Just step to the side. But what you shouldn't do is react like a normal human being, which is to <laughs> run or cower or, or crouch. No, you should watch it and then just step aside. See, it provides good safety tips as well. <laughs> So. <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> and then the other moment that comes to mind is when they go to the seals, and the laboratory where they're doing these experiments is on the ice. So while they're doing their scientific tasks, every so often you can hear some cracking, and you can hear some strange noises. These very odd sounds that may seem almost like they come from a theremin are the reality of the seals fighting and feeding and traveling under mm -hmm. the ice mass. And these sounds are so haunting and strange, yet they come from the point of nature itself. Yes, and he also brings in another element of danger, which is he discusses climate change. And as we're seeing this, he's talking about how the uh, ice masses are dwindling and discusses with some of the scientists things that have only become more and more obvious to, to all of us in the uh, years since the film came out. That's right. There's a charming moment where Herzog relates that many of the scientists just treat it as a point of fact that humanity has a very limited shelf life on this planet due to the changes that are happening in our world. And in one moment, he has, shows how one of the scientists shows these uh, 1950s apocalyptic movies like Them mm -hmm. are, are being played. And, and so the camera curves around as these scientists are watching the giant ants ravage the landscape when the things that they have witnessed could scarcely be more strange than what they're looking at. So if there's anything stranger than microorganisms, it might be Nicolas Cage <laughs> at full cage, <laughs> which brings us to Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans, released in 2009. Why are you going to take what belongs to me? Well, there was a time when I wouldn't have. I would have taken what was mine and left the rest on the table. But you see, I never got rich enough to retire. I'm stuck doing this shit. 
and I'm not young anymore. So now I don't leave nothing on the table. Pick it up. Shoot him again. What fool? The soul's still dancing. Nicholas Cage plays Terrence McDonough, a cop whose one act of heroism leaves him injured and dependent on an ever-increasing amount of illicit drugs leading to erratic and criminal behavior, all as he tries to coordinate a big drug bust and pay off his considerable debts. Now, on paper, if you know the history of this movie and the movie's subject, and you look at this cast list... (laughs) You could almost be just overjoyed with excitement, especially the more you are a Herzog fan and a Nicolas Cage fan, because this is a movie which deals on people engaging in depraved behavior (laughs) with a madman character in its center. It was very memorably played by Harvey Keitel in an earlier incarnation just called Bad Lieutenant, directed by Abel Ferrara. But if you need a madman to be in your crazy movie, who would you want to be a madman? <laughs> Nicolas Cage it should be top of the list. Who do you want to display a madman in your movie? Direct a madman. Herzog would be top of your list. And in fact, this even has noted noted deranged person Brad Dourif in a, <laughs> as a prominent role. So it's like, you would think, oh my God, this can't miss. This would be a fascinating take on it. How far do you think this what in achieving it, Brad? The, this this all worked out so well and, until you, we actually see the film. Mm. So, mm. problem number one, the title. This problem, this is not Werner Herzog's fault. Werner Herzog did not want the movie to be called Bad Lieutenant. It's uh, based on a script that has no relation to the Harvey Keitel Bad Lieutenant, and Werner Herzog has never seen the Harvey Keitel Bad Lieutenant, and on this note, having seen this Bad Lieutenant, I believe him. The original film, Abel Farrar's film, is magnificent. Harvey Keitel gives one of the most raw and harrowing performances of his career. It's a movie about guilt and faith and completely unfair of the studios to saddle this film with the greatness of the original that even under ideal circumstances, it isn't going to approach because it's a far more trivial kind of film it's a far more standard cop film so 
that's problem number one. Problem number two is Nicolas Cage. Nicolas Cage has given great performances. Adaptation comes to mind as one of his best. It, it seems that when he's working with a director who can rein him in, who could give him really solid direction, his craziness can be controlled and and molded into a really fine performance. But as we've seen in some of his goofier films, uh, when a director puts on no control, Cage goes nuts, and you end up with this insane film that's that's going off the rails. What I think might have happened here is that Herzog, maybe missing Kinski a little bit, saw how far afield Cage could go and kind of liked it because I don't sense that Herzog's really invested in this story. Mm. So he did the exact wrong thing you do with Nicolas Cage. He took the reins off and let Nicolas Cage go as big as possible. And his portrayal of a uh, drug-addled, bad lieutenant in this case i i'd I'd amended to say more like a bad at his job lieutenant (laughs) is comically weird and i think what we end up with is something unique in in the herzog canon a movie that that is enjoyable but but in a so bad it's good way you always can have to suspect a film whose title may include two colons in it. <laughs> Better than colon, port of call, colon, New Orleans. <laughs> but Cage's character is a guy who is supposed to be suffering from drug abuse. But this is something that Cage has done magnificently in Leaving Las Vegas, is to show someone in the depths of a horrible... Right, of al- uh, alcoholism. Oh, yeah, in that well, case. true, it's alcoholism, yeah. but the idea of a chemical mm-hmm. spiral of self destruction. So, how did it go wrong in this one? I think the script doesn't go for a focus on those emotional depths that Leaving Las Vegas does, that the original Bad Lieutenant does. Mm-hmm. And. He didn't direct or guide or let Nicolas Cage loose off of his leash in a direction to point towards those or made it clear to emphasize those. Right. So it wasn't – it isn't what you say – it isn't bad lieutenant so much as crazy lieutenant. It, it, it's kind of like uh, in Heat – Yes. Where uh, <laughs> yeah. Al Pacino is weirdly going way over the top playing the cop in that movie. Yes. Turns out on the cutting room floor, we find out that he's high on cocaine the whole time, which is why he's doing that. And what Cage is doing here makes Al Pacino seem subtle. <laughs> so just the, the eyes are bugging out. Every line is delivered in this real intense over the top way and because he's injured his back he's taken to contorting his body to where he's he's starting to be like richard the third with a hump hump hunchback (laughs) and he's just doing everything he can to put crazy ticks on this character and 
you mentioned the script. The story ain't that interesting. It's basically about a cop trying to infiltrate a, a drug dealer and standard cop movie things follow with the only twist on it being that the cop is a bad guy. Not really that interesting on its own. And you could tell that Herzog isn't terribly invested because he's far more interested when he gets to bring iguanas right. on screen. So as Cage gets more and more deranged, he starts to see iguanas. And then you could see the light bulb over Herzog's head light <laughs> up, and he's like, I can shoot iguanas like nobody can shoot iguanas. So not only do we see iguanas, the iguanas get their own theme song. Yeah, right. And so right. we get a scene like that looks like it's from an iguana point of view. The entire song is playing. And it's like, okay, now this is this is A, the only thing Herzog seems to be interested in, and B really has nothing to do with the plot. Yeah. One thing where I think it just falls short in a way I was really not expecting is that look at the setting. The setting would work great on paper for a Herzog movie because this is New Orleans, man. One of the weirdest places on earth. So much crazy history and a swampy one right. at that. So you would think that there would be such a porous level of these overgrown trees and and sweaty narrow corridors and and crazy Mardi Gras like uh festivities and examples of really obscene behavior of all kinds but there's not really in fact it looks like in a weird way he let his director of photography take over because so much of it is filled as like this monochrome darkness of the occasional flash strobe lights in mm -hmm. there that it almost seemed like it was that he was meant to take over much like how Richard Lester took over from Superman, some of the duties of Superman too. Right. Like it looks like it looks to me like Herzog was airdropped in the last minute to take care of a Tony Scott project. Yeah, it seems like a compromised work. We know already that he argued with the studio about the title of the film and lost that argument. It's probably pretty safe to say the uh, alligators and iguanas were his and not the studios. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, this seems to be Herzog, for the only time I could think of, really stranded in this Hollywood, the kind of Hollywood studio controversies that plague many American directors. And because he started his career in Germany and concentrated so much on documentaries, he's been generally able to avoid this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But now that he's got a big, uh, big star and supporting cast, Val Kilmer's in it, given nothing interesting to do. Right. And this <laughs> is Val, Val Kilmer also noted for not behaving normally in a great many other films. <laughs> Although in in class in a classic bad movie moment, I, I do have to call out the actor. I don't know his name. He's got a bit part. Um, Cade, Cage's girlfriend, uh, played by Eva Mendez, is a prostitute. And her John is there, and, and Cage basically is, wants to just throw him out of the room. And he's uh, But he's connected. And he, his uh, reaction to being thrown out, one of these, do you know who 
you're dealing with kind of businesses is done with such glorious overacting as to match Cage himself. Ah. It's just it's just an MST3K worthy moment. This cast is amazing. There's so many people known for being playing deranged, crazed individuals. <laughs> like Ferris Balk is in this movie. Yep. Michael freaking Shannon is in this movie. And yet it just does not give these guys enough of a base for where anything connects together in a, in a compelling story. It says something when Michael Shannon is in your movie, and he's not the twitchiest guy in the movie. <laughs> true, true. <laughs> There's, I think, just one moment mm-hmm. where you go, okay, now that's that's a Herzog moment. And I think I know which one you mean. It's when they, uh, one of the baddies gets shot, and... Cage is somehow not satisfied and wants right. to, to keep shooting, and he explains his soul is still dancing. Yes. And then we see clearly another actor, a, a dancer of some kind, doing some... <laughs> He's straight up breakdancing. Right, breakdancing <laughs> in, in, the, in the same costume as the hood. Yeah. And the music playing is the same music that's featured to far different effect uh, at the end of Strozik in the chicken dance sequence. Exactly. <laughs> so Herzog did get a couple scenes in there, but not, not enough to save this. That's right. Ah. Now, from that, this leads to maybe Herzog's most dramatic whiplash from one type of subject matter to another, from what may be his most conventional attempt at a movie, to... One of the most documentarian of his documentary efforts in his film Cave of Forgotten Dreams in 2010. This cave had been perfectly sealed for tens of thousands of years. by far the oldest paintings ever discovered. It is as if the modern human soul had awakened here. This is one of the rare times anyone is allowed inside the cave. This may be the only and last opportunity to film inside. This film was originally presented in 3D and exploring the Chauvet Cave in southern France, which is home to some of the earliest cave drawings ever made from prehistoric man. Now, Herzog's camera provides great detail on these artistic windows into an earlier epoch. So, friends, uh, I, I messed up here. I did not see this movie in 3D when it came out and I had the chance I have since seen it a couple times on television. It still looks great. It's a fascinating subject. You could tell that as spectacular as the visuals of these ancient cave drawings are conventionally, that if you were able to see them presented the way they were meant to be presented, it would be even more impressive. But having not seen that, 
it didn't grab me quite in the way that Encounters at the End of the World did, or even the visuals of Lessons of Darkness. And so I end up with a great respect for this film, but I, I think it's very probable that the uh, 3D presentation may be uh, even more essential. I was lucky enough to see it in 3D when it uh, aired, and I was subsequently had seen it in 2D. And so I definitely note that the, the distinction that you're describing is incredibly accurate. There are certain films that are presented in 3D that if you see them in 2D, you may enjoy them, you may get a lot out of them, but you are not, you are absolutely not seeing the same movie. Uh, Gravity is one of those. Mm -hmm. And I would go and say that Cave of Forgotten Dreams is definitely that as well. When you look at these cave drawings in 3D, you first are put aghast by how big they are. If you're more familiar with cave drawings being like something similar to the kind of scrawling that maybe your nephew did on a refrigerator, <laughs> then when you see these mammoth representations that are done often eight or ten feet high, that's a really startling effect. And when you see it in the movie in 2D and you see human beings standing next to it, then the you can see the height. But in 3D, the creatures that are depicted almost look like they leap off at you. Right. And you get this particular presence out of the movie in 3D because as Herzog describes how these drawings were made or how people would be sitting in this cave as a refuge and he would use torches and the flickering light of the torches would cause the animals, the figures of the animals on the walls to appear as if they're moving. And as Herzog shows you this in 3D, you see it. <laughs> you, you, you see the, as the light plays upon the different ridges of where these drawings are made, you can totally see that effect about how the animals seem to almost be enroaching or retreating. And it also is just does a great job of showing how it's not this big flat surface that's a great canvas for people to draw. No, there's not only are there bulges and ridges and depressions where these drawings had to be made to represent uh, an animal or a human figure, but then they use the different areas of the rock to make features of these animals. So it's an example of improvisation that also comes across. And you feel also the the real claustrophobia of the cave of these ca of this cave area, and at the same time, when you get these the imagery of the animals in the light, you feel like you can just move your hand <laughs> through this kind of near darkness and almost just reach for a part of ancient history it gives a tactile sensation to the sweep of the years of that this artistry had been taking place in a way that 2d just could not duplicate 2d just becomes a standard depiction not an immersive experience right so 
some of that isn't coming across on the uh, Netflix streaming presentation, which is the easiest way for everyone to see the film. Mm-hmm. But what does come across is Herzog's giddy enthusiasm for this. He feels and he conveys that through these drawings, we are really able to look back in time at our earliest ancestors and try to get a feel for what it was like to live in those days. And as in all of Herzog's films, he brings his themes into this one as well, because here are humans living in as close to a state of nature as possible. (laughs) To be sure, to be sure. He seems to be more receptive. And here in Cave of Dreams, it is almost inspirational to see how enthusiastically Herzog delves into the scientists' opinions on things, but how they're able to draw into human behavior through the most minute fragments, or just the way that uh, like one drawing has been superimposed on another, or the way a different um, piece of skeleton or bone fragment has come in, and the way they're able to draw so much out of how these humans lived and behaved. Out of the smallest, out of the smallest details. And I see him being more responsive and more dedicated towards showing that way of increasing human understanding as opposed to dismissing it all as just the mad attempts of understanding our world. It's an influence that I found growing within him as a, as his work has moved on and has is made really, really manifest. Now, I just have to admit, part of it is that I, I come from a bit of a science background, and I adore the principles of science. Mm-hmm. The idea that like you can just take all these details and by using these principles, have a increase a better understanding. So I really enjoy Cave of Forgotten Dreams just for that, because he's doing something that I really enjoy witnessing, and I feel his enthusiasm for this endeavor as well. This seems like a follow-up to the style that he developed in uh, Encounters at the End of the World, but it takes it the other way, where we saw all kinds of environments, and there was no end to the vistas in Encounters and places to explore. Mm -hmm. Here, he has to figure out a way to deal with enclosed spaces, which he's successful at. I mean, these caves are beautiful in their own way but we find out as the the film goes on there really are kind of a limited number of drawings we have to look at so where encounters had this endless opportunity for exploration this movie seems a little smaller scale because we're going to look at the same images over and over again, and we're going to get different uh, perspectives on them, which are very interesting. But on a purely visual level, if you look at this along with similar films like Encounters at the End of the World and then Into the Inferno, which we're going to talk about soon, it doesn't quite reach those heights. Yeah, I can see that. It's a little more inert and doesn't have this sense of, oh my God, what's going to happen if you just turn this corner that has, that has shown up in both his documentary 
and his narrative film work. However, as a treatise of itself to an uh, a heretofore unviewed vista of a part of humanity, it's still very well worth watching, even in 2D. Agreed. So now we're going to move on to a different kind of exploration. How does time occur to you now in your situation? Wow, that's a, that's a good thing. <laughs> it, it, it really varies because I, like, I'll forget. I'll literally forget. And then I'll look at my calendar. I'll hear someone say something. I'll be like, man. And I'll sit back and I'll just stare at the wall and I'll be like, man, eight days, seven days, six days or whatever. And it's like, it's just, I, I must not be comprehending the fact that it's that close because it's hard for me to say, you know what? Like I talked about, you know, in eight days, these people want to murder me. And it's just something that it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to believe that the state of Texas wants to murder me in eight days. Into the Abyss, released in 2011, is a documentary investigating life on death row through interviews with convicted murderer Michael Perry just days before his scheduled execution. Herzog also delves into the details of the killing that put him there as he interviews family members, accomplices, and others involved in this grisly case. This is a great example about how certain artists do a set of skills and presentation extraordinarily well. They show a lens on a different facet of the subjects that they're interested in. But, depending upon what they choose to look at... <laughs> Things are going could be more successful, and things are going to be less successful. And Herzog has these particular abilities. We've pointed out how he's able to show these amazingly unique details on things. And when they're on a subject, like paintings from eons ago, to underwater denizens of the farthest southernmost reach of this planet... When Herzog shows these things, it's a very much of a wow, a captivating moment for us to witness. However, here, he is focusing is on a true crime story, which is the exact opposite from a unique thing we've seen. Rather, this is something you can see on Dateline and on a whole cable channels every hour. And it seems to be the kind of thing his uh, good friend Errol Morris does much better. Yes. And which is not to say that it's incompetently made or anything like that, but I, I kind of have the same objections that I did to Rescue Dawn, which is from a director as unique as Herzog. I hope to not just see things that I've seen before. There is something innately compelling about true crime stories, but we expect Herzog to bring something new to the table. And he's, he's kind of hampered with that uh, by the subject matter. He seems to have two parallel goals of this film. Uh, one is to do an expose on uh, the death penalty, on life on death row. He, he makes it clear in, in his uh, interview that uh, he is against the death penalty. But he also, at the same time, wants to explore this case 
in great, great detail. And he does so, but he's kind of at the mercy of the subject matters he's interviewing. And where usually he shows this innate skill at finding the most interesting person in the room and really focusing in on, 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 on somebody who you want to hear from and, 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 and are going to be compelled by, this cast of characters involved in this case don't provide that, and he's not really able to... Uh, to get it out of them. Right. You look at the people inhabiting this true crime story and they both don't provide these kind of details that make you wonder about their situation in a way that even many actual dateline true crime shows allow you to do. Mm -hmm. But Herzog does show a curiosity but it's a curiosity born out of things that are striking his interest in on a moment-by-moment basis, informed by these quirks of human behavior that he was looking at both in Little Dieter Needs to Fly and, more importantly, Stroshik. Hmm. You said something incredibly cool about Stroshik to say only a director like Werner Herzog could make Wisconsin look like <laughs> the apocalypse. And I think Herzog felt that from Wisconsin <laughs> in Stroshik, and I think he feels that and wants to explore that in Texas. And unfortunately, I think that this guides him to look at details of these people's lives, which may seem novel to him, but unfortunately, we've had way too much experience, not just with the true crime series, but with hundreds and hundreds of episodes of the show Cops <laughs> in terms of people behaving at their absolute worst and most self-degrading that the various details that Herzog would show, like, for example, a guy who... Uh, was attacked by a screwdriver and then casually relates how the screwdriver was lodged in his chest for a long time is something that we is a detail that we would have heard we've ended up unfortunately hearing in a whole bunch of different episodes of cops right or or the, or the equivalent so much but then when he decides but what interests him in prodding them is like when he talks to these people it's like wow these people are really decrepit so this guy who is just relating a story about how he when he was attacked with a screwdriver Herzog decides to include a scene about saying that he's been illiterate all of his life does it add to the story? Does it give you a detail to the to the situation of the murder case? No, it's just, look at this guy. Now, there is an exception to this. I did find one of these subjects extremely compelling, which was the father of another uh, accomplice in the murder, a fellow who is not going to be executed, but is going to spend the rest of his life in jail. And Herzog interviews his father about his role as a parent, and he's, he's, he's in jail himself. What's really interesting about, about this character is his self-awareness, because that seems to be what most of, of the people being interviewed lack. Yet the father from prison is asked, well, 
is the way you lived your life? Are you responsible for your son having to spend his life in prison? And he's just like, yes. And, and he describes how he basically, in his own mind, ruined his son's life. It's very poignant and, again, very, very self-aware. I see it as, while no less of a human sentiment, it is the sentiment of that of a hopeful wish that things would have turned out different, but not one that based on any particular sense of responsibility that this guy ever would have adequately been able to deal with had he been in that magically returned to that situation. Well, I mean, he, he clearly wasn't, but in a movie that I think a lot of subjects are trying to hide things, there was such honesty and an emotional honesty in this fellow that, that that he managed to make me interested in a way that the other people in the film did not. Hmm. Yeah, we're having a dramatically different viewpoint on these on this film because I feel that everybody is quite honest. It's just that some of the people are sociopaths, so they honestly mm-hmm. are not showing any regret and the person on death row, the ostensible subject of this documentary is such a complete cipher of just, he treats his impending execution the same way Dieter treats his, the torturous things he went through as just this, Oh, Oh, well, that's what's going to happen. And Oh, he's in complete denial. Yeah. And his compatriot in this particular criminal enterprise he's very very forthright upon well yeah i did bad things here and i did bad things there and uh, and i'm in jail but i should be in jail uh he doesn't reflect upon whether he needed a father or not i'm i'm bad i'm a bad person and i guess this is where i was gonna end up and there's always seems to be this inclination like we like you had said about is also in jail it seems character after character, regardless of their periphery of the story, just kids points out, oh, and they're also going to be in jail. <laughs> yeah. Seems to almost be the undercurrent about it. It's like that everybody here is kind of skeezy and things are going to end up badly for them. All this level of showing human tragic, sad, pathetic ineptitude just kept kept rushing in on it. And I feel that this film was in a certain extent that the main thing that interested Herzog was to just get to show how Stroshek-like these people would be, and at the same time, how his feeling about the death penalty would be. Like, there's a talk with a employee at the prison whose job was to administer the machine, and he said how he had a change of heart, which... Maybe very fair to his story, but akin to like what I was telling you about like how, wait, you don't see all the other takes. The thing is, though, is that in Texas, they kind of adored the execution policy. Like, in fact, the electric chair that was used in so many executions in Texas was given the delightful moniker of Old Sparky. So you're not ca- so you're not getting the viewpoint of people who are like, no, no, these guys deserve to die. Get them in the get them in the execution chamber as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. You don't get that perspective in this film. This interview with the uh, person overseeing the executions kind of gives you a hint 
uh, of the film it could have been if it had continued uh, its focus on capital punishment and death row itself mm -hmm. instead of getting really bogged down in the case. Yeah. Now, I do have to say, since you've uh, compared it to Strozik a, a couple times, that Strozik is an absolutely magnificent film where every character is so much more compelling than what we're presented here. Mm -hmm. But it it is equally bleak in looking at the underbelly of society. And it gives such a momentum mm -hmm. to the character's descent in Stroshik. Right, exactly. Now, while we were not terribly fond of Herzog's going in this direction, this, this is actually a project Herzog was very passionate about, and he ended up doing a, a short TV miniseries called On Death Row, where uh, he spent each episode focusing on a different inmate uh, facing the death penalty. So it, it should be noted that this is something that Herzog was passionate about. Yeah, and it also should be noted that Herzog did a pretty amazing series on the dangers of texting and driving, hmm. which gets really really harsh and has this phenomenal emotional component to the f sense of anguish that could come from this these, these moments his advocacy upon it is so potent in the in those in those segments and i think some of those are available online for people to check out nice and that brings us to uh, 2016, where we both got to see uh, two Herzog films uh, in the presence of Herzog himself yes. at the uh, Toronto Film Festival. One of the great pleasures of my time being an enthusiast of film to be able to not just uh, have a chance to hear what Werner Herzog has to say, but in this in the movie we're about to talk about to literally be 10 feet away from looking at the back of his head as him and the cast and crew got a chance to watch salt and fire this magnificent specimen mr mcmurphy speaks what did it just say remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth you know what nostradamus said about talking birds no i do not read nostradamus mm. He foretold what sounds like science fiction today. He said, household pets finally communicate with man. Life then possible outside the planet. A new tyrant sows terror events to come. A world run by big data and predictive analytics doesn't care about Renaissance predictions. Hmm. It's not so much the predictions themselves that fascinate me, it's where they come from, are they true? Is it possible that there is something all pervading around us which we are incapable of seeing, that your data can't analyze, which only the prophets and birds can express? This film follows three scientists en route to the world's largest salt flat, Salar de Ununi, in Bolivia. When they are kidnapped by masked gunmen, the head scientist, Dr. Laura Summerfield, is soon confronted by her captor and finds out the mysterious reason for their abduction. This would have been a fascinating documentary, 
but it ended up being a far less fascinating uh, work of fiction with some of the most unfortunate script choices <laughs> I've seen yeah? in a while. But I want to I want to start with the good news, and and that's at the end. These salt flats are visually stunning. Herzog, as we've mentioned so many times, knows how to capture the, the this, these natural phenomena. And that's no different here. So in the scenes in the salt flats, you're dealing with some spectacular-looking filmmaking. But on a narrative level, everything falls apart for me here. And I, th- I think the main culprit is the script. Herzog has said as part of his own life story that when he was starting to become a filmmaker, he stole the camera that he would use for his film classes, and he would use that very camera to film his first series of movies. Here in Salt and Fire, I found that Herzog has pulled a similar trick. Except it's not a camera, it is the financing to get a movie filmed in the salt flats. The movie itself, to the extent that you can tell what the plot is, apparently is looks to be a international thriller, except it is phenomenally stupid and incompetent. New Orleans Port of Call does not feature <laughs> some lines to the just astoundingly, mortifyingly horrible extent that Salt and Fire does. It, like, here's a, a key line is where Michael Shannon's bad guy looks at a pick drawing and goes, Oh, I found this drawing really compelling. It'll be really helpful to look at this drawing when I spend 15 years in prison. <laughs> There's a lot of pontificating from uh, Michael Shannon once he reveals himself as the mastermind behind the kidnapping. Apparently, he is an industrial head whose children were uh, are blinded by the natural disasters going on in the uh, ever-spreading salt flat, which apparently is complicated by a uh, vo- area volcano that could erupt and I think destroy the world yeah at any point and so now there's this team of scientists who are uh, heading in to uh, to do a report for the UN on what's going on uh, but they can't do that because they are kidnapped now the the two male parts of the expedition are held at bay in a fairly unique manner. They are given food to give them diarrhea, yeah. which uh, which yeah. renders them helpless. So this is a, a very original method of, of subduing here. <laughs> well, there is, and, and one of the scientists is played incredibly atrociously by Gail Garcia Bernal <laughs> uh, from Admiros Peros and Itu Mama Tambien, among many other films, many films in which he's done a fine job. Here, it's this kind of superficial, annoying, 
like, loud-mouthed jackass that just harkens back to what Jake Gyllenhaal was doing in his Okja character. Ooh, wow. He's, he's, he's so bad. Like, the guy literally is less annoying when he's just overcome with diarrhea. <laughs> it is a service for the movie. <laughs> now, the lead is played by uh, Veronica Ferris, who I believe was a, a model. And yes. uh, doesn't really embarrass herself, but doesn't really do anything too interesting in the acting area either. So she's separated from the group. And now Michael Shannon's going to slowly reveal his master plan, uh, which is to strand her at the salt flats with his two blind children, which, which, which leads to the, the, the best scenes in the movie, uh, the aforementioned salt flats. But, you realize that everything he accomplishes by this kidnapping and abandoning and putting his children in the care of this person and going to jail afterwards, the the same things could have just been accomplished if he, he had contacted her in a normal way and just introduced her to his kids and exactly told her the right. situation. <laughs> there is no reason for this plot to be happening. None. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's so ridiculous. And then to find out at the end that, no, it literally was completely beside <laughs> the point. When all up to that point, the movie is trying to present Michael Shannon as some sort of ecological version of a James Bond villain. <laughs> that he says, oh, the world, the earth, the earth is at stake. But then the things that he does, the way you're going to take care of that is to kidnap scientists and then okay so you kidnap them so you're going to broadcast their your demands no you're going to leave her alone on a soft flight where she might just die of thirst and then <laughs> we're not and then leave your own kids and then you'll just go to jail anyway what the, what the, what the, what yeah, the, not what to the mention fuck? his henchmen uh, who were introduced to in a wheelchair who just gets up and walks around because well, well. he's in the wheelchair because he was tired of living? I don't know. No, 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 no. It's better than that, Brad. He's uh, he's spends this time in the large sections of the beginning of the movie just desperately lugging his wheelchair. People have to carry him mm -hmm. out of cars in this wheelchair. And so halfway through the movie... He just he just gets up to which everyone, including us, are completely astonished. Wait, wait a minute, what the what is going on? And to which he says, and I and I'm paraphrasing, I'm just in the chair because of my sadness at the state of the world. And it just Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> this is not meant to be intentionally funny, but it reminded me of this wonderful clip from Mr. Show where they were having a take on evil televangelists, and they bring in a, a little kid who's stricken in the wheelchair. And the kid's tilted, and he can't barely move. And they say, well, here's Timmy. Timmy, I have to ask you, what, what is your affliction? And Timmy says in a really faint voice, I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that goofy, but it's totally played straight. Right. And this is, this, and by the way, this, this antics where it's like, you're literally, you're not believing the stupidity you're looking at on screen extends to all these terrorist machinations. A great drinking game you would have from this is to literally drink every time someone inappropriately either puts on their ski masks or takes off their ski masks because they put on their ski masks 
after clearly displaying themselves for the people they are going to kidnap, thereby making it more of a fashion statement than anything else. Yeah, these people are about as good at kidnapping as Nicolas Cage was at being a cop. This is, <laughs> this is a, a, without a, the and, excuse of rampant drug abuse. Yeah, well, <laughs> but uh, right, right, no problem. But, but my, Michael Shannon has to deliver the clunkiest lines, and you could tell they're just kind of these thoughts that Herzog just has. And if he was doing a documentary and wanted to deliver these lines in the wonderful Herzog voice. Yeah, they'd work. But Michael Shannon can't handle this dialogue. It's like Harrison Ford said when they were making uh, Star Wars. Well, you know, you, you could write this stuff, but you can't <laughs> say it. <laughs> right. I actually have a more charitable view of that than, than you do, maybe. Because while his what Shannon has to say does not match what any motivations of those of the what his character is supposed to do if you were to imagine Shannon's character as some sort of big stone sphinx that dispenses wisdom every time you like you press the magic panel then he he does actually deliver the lines of saying this or that about society in a mystical way now that's not saying much but I'll tell you this it's better than all of the other performances into this into this movie. There, there is not that is a low a low bar. It is especially it is a, since Shannon is is forced to do the obligatory uh, say the title in the dialogue yes, that's line right. where he has to say basically something. We will be done in by either salt or fire. <laughs> <laughs> but when they get to the salt flats, and then. Michael Shannon leaves the picture. All the ski mask wearing and wheelchair jumping people leave the picture. And most importantly, everything resembling the plot of the movie leaves the picture. And is just this lady getting accommodated to these harsh salt and desert conditions mm -hmm. with these two kids who share this kind of bond with each other and a way of seems to be a way of communicating with each other, despite the fact that they're blind and mute. And something magical happens is that out of the desert, you get an oasis of pure Herzogian sentiment. Exactly. That kind of like <laughs> feeling of people in the world that they try to adjust for and may or may not succeed and how well or poorly they can adapt to it. That's been shown from, from the Bruno S over to the Lessons of Darkness and Fata Morgana comes in here and if literally if the movie was simply that like her plane had crashed mm -hmm. and she just sees these two kids and you don't even know why they're there and they just the movie just concentrates on it it has a sense of people trying to connect in a in a very straight in a mm, people trying to connect and adjust and live through a strange yet weirdly compelling natural world that evokes some of the moments from Nicholas Rogue's walkabout, I think. Yeah, there's 15 minutes of a fine film in this uh, hour and 40 minute movie. And I wish there was so some way that Herzog would have had either the means or, or the will to really focus on that, either make it a documentary or even take a lessons of darkness type approach where you're just dealing with these salt flats in isolation. Yes. So there's something to get out of this, 
but you have to to wade through a lot of diarrhea to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, well put. But at that same festival, there was another film. The sun dimmeth, the land sinketh, gusheth forth steam and gutting fire. To the heavens soar the hurtling flames of the mighty gods, the engulfing doom. It is hard to take your eyes off the fire that burns deep under our feet. This was a monstrous volcanic eruption, one of the largest in all of Earth history. Obviously, there was a scientific side to our journey, but what we were really chasing was the magical side, no matter how strange things might eventually get. Into the Inferno, released in 2016, is a documentary about volcanoes, both the science and the folklore behind them. Observing active volcanoes in Indonesia, Iceland, North Korea, and Ethiopia, Herzog and volcanologist Clive Oppenheimer observe the fiery wonders and the surrounding cultures in each country. In a similar way to The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, this is a film that really enhances the bigger the screen upon which you get to view it. Herzog manages to get in really up close to some astounding volcanic imagery to the extent that you don't even see that it's magma formations going in a particular direction, but it's just this complete abstract mass of crimson and ebony that's continually curving and melting and forming and reforming of what looks like maybe the substance of hell itself. Hmm. I was very lucky in the circumstances I saw this film because not only was it on a big screen at the Toronto Festival, it was on an IMAX size screen. Nice. And what's sad about that is very few people were able to get this experience because it never got a theatrical release here in Chicago at all. It pretty much went right to Netflix. It's a Netflix production, and it seems that for most folks, that's the only way they'll ever be able to see this film. And first of all, see it. It's magnificent. It's actually one of my favorite uh, Herzog movies. But at the same time, it's just a shame that more people won't be able to see it on a big screen with with that kind of presentation because Herzog has found a subject that kind of like the oil fires in Lessons of Darkness, just the 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 visual pleasures of it are are endless. But he doesn't stop there. He kind of takes it on almost as a summation of his career. He does a little bit for his documentaries, what he did with uh, my best in my best fiend with his earlier films, because you see clips from earlier Herzog documentaries that dealt with volcanoes, a short he did in the seventies called La Soffrere. And I apologize. I'm sure I mispronounced that he was filming a volcano uh, and 
it started to erupt and they literally had to cut the short the short short mm. <laughs> to uh, get away from the danger and you mentioned as we were talking about encounters at the end of the world that there was a volcano sequence in that and we get to see uh, clips from that movie again and we get to know the fellow who we saw in that film Clive Oppenheimer we get to know him more and he is he's a, he's a wonderful character he is a a scientist but has the same kind of playful uh, innocence that, there's a really fun mm-hmm. bit of humor on that score when when he said, I was really worried when you were going to show up, Werner, because we thought you'd be goading us to go rappelling down to get right at the lava's edge. And Herzog's reply was, no, that would be clearly unsafe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is... Not, not that he wasn't tempted. <laughs> right, right, right. But the other cool thing about this movie is that in each location for each volcano we get to know these uh, the surrounding culture and people around the volcano. And they all have this relationship to the volcano because it is the most immense thing in the area. So in some cultures, it's worshipped. In some cultures, it's used as propaganda. In, in, in others, for scientific study. So like uh, at the very beginning, we're... Um, Herzog is interviewing a uh, tribe elder who explains that their uh, ancestors used to be cannibals. And then we, we meet a bunch of kids making fun of the idea by pretending to be cannibals themselves. And Herzog films it as if he was filming a cannibal scene. <laughs> and it's just incredible. It's just really charming. Yeah, yeah. Herzog's search for detail when now the lens is back to focusing on these very unique places and very unique ways of dealing with the volcanoes and these areas that few people have had to witness, never more so than we he uses volcanoes as a pretext to somehow get some astounding footage from North Korea. Yeah, that sequence really blew my mind because he... He he basically filmed things he wasn't supposed to film. Yep. Herzog anywhere is kind is kind of an unpredictable force, but putting him in North Korea, where I'm just glad he got out of there. Right. Uh, but but he he managed to in a very short period of the film detail and explore the uh, complete government domination of the North Korean people and show very viscerally how even individuals lose their individuality when they're, when they, they can't speak their mind when they have to just be mouthpieces of the government. In terms of the movie, it doesn't quite work because while other parts of the movie use the volcano as this really potent source of both power and as a threatening force. Here, while Herzog does tie into different ways that the leaders are shown hanging around a volcano mm-hmm. to show their power, and right. their threat. So he does do, he do credit for, for doing that, but that's very scant, and often he's focusing on things that have absolutely nothing to do with volcanoes. However, this is footage about the culture of North Korea, 
that's illuminated very nicely. So if, like in Salt and Fire, Herzog would just admit, look, I just made some BS about volcanoes <laughs> so I can get to the North Korea, <laughs> I have to credit him. Because we've seen something here that we've, we never get a chance to witness. It may be rarer than some of these undersea creatures from Encounters the End of the World to look at the way this culture is all turned in on ways of control. Right. And we, t- we talked before about how Herzog follows the muse mm-hmm. to where his subjects take him. Yep. And this might be the ultimate example of that, because if you're Werner Herzog and you're doing a film about volcanoes and you're going to study one in North Korea and you see all this totalitarian spectacle yeah. all around you, well, damn right, you're going to film the shit out of that. Mm-hmm. But I also think it works in the context of the film because all of these volcanoes are telling the story of what's going on around it. And yes, it's very different in this case because you're talking about a uh, a government who insists that its people recognize their leaders as gods. Yeah. How different is that from a tribe that worships an American soldier from World War II named John Frum, who supposedly appeared in the volcano to them and has since become kind of a local deity. So I think Herzog rightly connects kind of these strange things like a church designed to look like a chicken (laughs) and the John Frum cult to the uh, leader worship cult of North Korea. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interest you can get out of how the power of a volcano and maybe the ultimate mystery of a volcano just leads to this leads to these myths about hum, human figures that you want to think are larger than life. It echoes to a point of a tribe in the earlier part of the movie where they say Every so often, one of them goes to the volcano, and then the volcano, quote-unquote, tells them something. But it's a message that's only for that person. Mm -hmm. Herzog expresses that visually by doing these just amazing viewpoints of the volcano. And through the mist of of this awesome display of molten earth, from where are the secrets you can divulge from this, but the power from which you want to make myths from, is undeniable. And if you're wondering if Into the Inferno uh, fits in with Herzog's themes, the last line of the movie delivered by Herzog just sums it up perfectly. This boiling mass is just monumentally indifferent to scurrying roaches retarded reptiles and vapid humans alike (laughs) ladies and gentlemen this era of the herzog filmography (laughs) yes does give an indication of how much he appreciated those iguanas from bad (laughs) from bad lieutenant port of call doesn't it (laughs) it that is a real quintessential herzog statement and and herzog has made many such in his films that he's made 
in this part of his filmography. But I want to hearken to a quote that he made while introducing Salt and Fire that we both had a chance to hear together when we saw it in Toronto. He said, when asked why did he make Salt and Fire, he said, when I make a movie, I would want to go, it is like I want to put my arm around you and say, come here, let us go together on a journey of wonder and imagination. Which I go, well, that's just great. That's a wonderful message. I find that so inspiring. After the screening of Into the Inferno, somewhat against character for me, I decided that uh, Herzog was important enough in my film discovery and, and love of film that I wanted to thank him for all he had done. And I saw that there was an opportunity and uh, I told him how important his work was to me and, and thanked him. And uh, he, he said to me something that I've later found out that he generally says, so it wasn't something unique to me, but I, I did like that. He said this to me. He said, we are all soldiers in cinema. a fine sentiment no matter how many other people he expressed it to aside from yourself (laughs) and i think this is a director who over and over and over again has not only shown such a spirit towards showing a different place and a different look at these places but has so often succeeded and getting us to both look at different parts of our world and maybe let us give a different look to our own world in return as we reflect back on what we've just seen. Werner Herzog is a one of a kind. It's really been fun exploring both parts of Herzog's career and seeing the evolution of someone who started out in in world cinema embracing all kinds of different formats, different styles. We had a lot of disagreements of the films in this particular set. I think we're, we're all much more enamored by, by the earlier films. But the thing is, even when Herzog is making films that don't work a hundred percent. They're still just very much his own and the result of a singular vision. Exactly. Exactly. So God bless him. Inferno bless him. And I look forward to whatever film about lands of dreams and the abysses of darkness (laughs) that Herzog will take us to next. We hope that you guys listening have enjoyed our exploration into Werner Herzog's explorations. If you have your favorite Herzog films or your favorite Herzog movie moments or want to go comment upon what you think of what we think about Herzog, you can contact us at our email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club can be found all over the net in multiple venues from iTunes and Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, Twitter at DC Podcast, and 
Our previous episodes, including episode 133 on Herzog Part 1, can be found on our website at directorsclubpodcast.com. Thanks for listening, and hope to join you guys on another journey of the Director's Club. He was so obsessed with his lizards. All he wanted was to photograph the lizards. He never wanted to put me in a close-up. He photographed everybody else in close-up, but not me. But I remember, to my relief, a few fans were there. And they said, Nick, can we please have a picture with you? And they got right there, and I said, sure, honey. And we took a great picture again. I said, you see, Werner, some people do want me in a close-up. <laughs>